I was supposed to be here eight days ago, and I got really sick, and I want to thank Mr. Falk for stepping in. I, I could have gotten up here and spoken, but I would have sneezed over like the first two rows, and you guys would have been really sick for a few days. Uh, I'm doing better, but, but I am struggling this morning a little bit, and I want to tell you why. In our youth group, we have established a decorating committee. That's not why I'm struggling. Our decorating committee is... I'm going to publicly praise them. John and Kurt, are they here? You don't have to stand up if you're here. There's, oh, there they are. Okay. They're doing a great job. In fact, I can envision a day when we're all watching them on their own HGTV show of some kind. They're, I don't know, renovating youth rooms. Youth Room America with John and, I don't know what it'll be called, but they're doing great. Um, but one thing that they did, we've got a chalkboard down there. And they, start, they inaugurated question of the week. And last night's question was, am I getting this right? If JJ was an animal, what kind of animal? I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. I bet somebody's going to put, like, rattlesnake because of its cunning and quickness. Or orca because of its grace and strength. Or lion for bravery. Then I went over and looked, and I start seeing animals like sloth and... <laughs> manatee and snail and turtle. I'm like, I'm seeing a theme here. And, it's, and then later on, somebody put cheetah. Now, that made me feel good for a second, but the font was like a very sarcastic font. And I don't think they meant cheetah. And that brought back this memory from back when I was in either fourth or fifth grade. It was recess, uh, time to pick up teams for football. So the the two stud athletes, this is how it always would go, would, they're the captains, pick up teams, this guy gets picked, this guy gets picked, it's down to the last two, and of course it's me and one other guy. I'm like, let's just get this over with, I know I'm going to get picked last, let's just do it. And, and whoever had the pick, instead of just going for the quick kill, said, you know what, I'm going to have you two guys race, and whoever wins the race, I'm picking him, and the loser of the race, not only is last man picked, He's also the slowest kid out here. So it's me and, and this other kid. Uh, I'll call him Tom Hauser because that was his name. Um, <laughs> I look over at Tom and I'm like, he's not known for his speed. I've, I've got a shot here, okay? So whoever the captain was says go. And all of a sudden I look up and Tom, I'm just eating Tom's dust. And I'm like, I'm last man pick, slowest kid in the class. This is, this is rough. That's the end of that story. But by the grace of God, that, that's one of my few bad memories growing up. Some of you can relate to this, some of you can't, but I consider myself to have had a very sheltered life growing up. I would look around at classmates, classmates whose parents were going through a divorce, and I thought, that must be, that must be devastating, I can't imagine that. Or somebody new would move in, and I would think to myself, what would it be like to have to move to a different place? to be the new kid, to miss your friends. Somebody would, would lose a family member tragically. And I'd think, I, I don't know how I, could, how I could handle that. And for the most part, I made it to 12th grade unscathed by a lot of the trauma, a lot of the, the really, really hard things that a lot of people face. And, I, and I'm thankful for that. But one thing that did happen was it, it sort of seeped into my thinking that somehow this is connected to my Christianity. The fact that, that I've been spared a lot of these things must somehow be an indicator that my faith is really strong, and because I'm such a great Christian, 
these bad things are not happening to me, okay? And some of you guys might be able to relate to that. I know that, that some of you guys have had an okay go of things to this point. Uh, your family's intact, you've lived here for a long time, you get good grades. It's very easy to, to slip into this thinking that God must be just favoring me because I'm such an awesome kid. There's some problems with that, though. For one thing, it's simply not true. <laughs> it's not consistent with what, what the gospel says. But another problem with it is it leaves us unprepared for what I think is going to happen at some point to any person who, who God truly loves. Um, I've told our youth group kids, there's really only two kinds of people. There's people who have had their world rocked by something really hard, and there's people who are going to have their world rocked by something really hard. And when that happens, and it, if it hasn't happened to you, it will, we have to wrestle with something that philosophers call the problem of evil. Okay? Now, when some people hear that phrase, they think problem of evil. Yeah, evil is a problem. If somebody does evil to me, that means they've caused me a problem. But that's not exactly what that means. Okay? The problem of evil means this. When, when we look at Scripture, we see certain things taught about God's character. Okay? And one of the things that Scripture teaches is that God is perfectly holy. He's just. He always does the absolute best and right and most moral thing. That is simply who he is. And Scripture also teaches that God is completely sovereign, that he's in total control of all things. And so when we encounter certain things, whether it's in our personal lives or whether it's, it's out in the world, some events, some experiences are very hard to make sense given what Scripture says about who God is. I know that you seniors, you who are seniors, last fall went to the Holocaust Museum, okay? And you were confronted head-on with the reality that about six million people were imprisoned, tortured, and taken away from their homes and their families, and ultimately killed because of their heritage, because of their, their ancestry. And when you're faced with that, it's very hard to just casually say, well, I think God's good and in control. We can't be nonchalant about who God is in the face of that. You can watch the news and you can see Christians or sometimes other minority religions in Muslim-dominated countries who are tortured and raped and murdered for their faith. And it forces us to ask, what, what is God really like? Why is God permitting this? Last week when I was putting this talk together, thinking it was going to be last week, I was checking the news because the, the tallest dam in the nation, the Oroville Dam in California, authorities were saying this thing is, is possibly about to burst. And in the, the plain below the dam lived about 200,000 plus people, like, like the population of Lincoln, was having to evacuate. And I thought, what would I be thinking about God if I was one of these people who's having to get out, not knowing if I'm ever going to be able to go back to my home, not knowing what's next, uh, feeling, feeling the weight of this reality. So some people have looked at this challenge, this problem of evil, and said, well, the God of the Bible must be a fiction. With all the ugliness and darkness and evil and pain in the world, there's no way that God is both completely good and completely powerful. It causes some just to turn to atheism. It causes some just to be, stay within Christianity but become really, really cynical. Apologists have come up with a couple of answers for the problem of evil. One is something called the free will defense all right, it's, it's the argument that, well, if, 
if God wanted to create a world with the greatest possible good, he had to give us, he had to give us free will. And that's why there's ugliness in the world, because God had to give us the, the ability to make choices. Others have responded with something called the problem of good. Okay? And they've said, look, if you're going to call a thing evil, you have to, there has to be some standard of what evil is. There has to be some concept of what good is, and God has to be the author. And I, and I think there's some validity to those responses, but, but I'm not convinced that that's what, where Scripture takes us. I'm not convinced that when somebody is the victim of abuse or if somebody's had their home destroyed by a tornado, that's, that their ultimate hope is in those kinds of, of responses. Scripture takes us in a different direction, and I want to look at a couple of extended passages this morning from the book of Job that talk about somebody who faced incredible evil, and Scripture helps us untangle at least a little part of how, how do we answer this question? What do we do with the fact that there's real darkness in the world when God tells us that he's good and he's in control? Turn to, turn to Job 1 for me, please. I should have had, it, had you turn to it earlier. Find Job 1 in the Old Testament. Job 1 goes like this uh, in the ESV. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the three days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them. And struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking... There came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. We see a little bit of peeling back the curtain of when some of these things happen, what the reasoning is. And it's, it's beyond our grasp. Imagine if you were to tell Job, all these things happen because of a, a kind of cosmic bet. It has nothing to do with your righteousness, although in a sense it did. It has nothing to do with any sin that you have. God isn't punishing Job here. It says very clearly that Job was, was good and upright. In fact, these things happened to him specifically because of his faithfulness. God chose him for this suffering because of his faithfulness, ultimately to prove a point within the spirit world. Now, Satan points out to God when they're, when they're debating here about who Job is, you know, Job only loves you because of his wealth, okay? A little picture of the temptation that we all face. Do we love God because of his blessings? <clears throat> or do we love God for himself? And then we see what happens. This isn't like a minor, you know, losing 10% of your livestock. In, in a moment, his entire wealth is, is gone. And before he can even process that, his family, his entire family, except for his wife, is wiped out. And we see the faithfulness of Job. And, and we look at that and, and go, how could you respond the way Job did? He responded with grief. The, the, the passage makes it very clear that in his grief, he did not sin. And as a human reading this, I read this and I think, it's probably enough for one guy to deal with. But look at chapter 2. We're going to read all of chapter 2 as well. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Again, I would ask you, put yourself in Job's shoes. 
Consider all that he went through in chapter 1. And again, in my mind, be like, that's enough. And yet, God chose to bring him to the next level of suffering, to take away even his health. Uh, The one thing he had, maybe thought he had, was his wife's support and encouragement. Finally, she reaches the breaking point, says, curse God and die. His friends show up, and in this passage, they at least take the time to sit with him and grieve with him. But we know from the remainder of the text of Job that we're not going to read that this morning. But eventually his friends started digging in and saying, Job, surely there's something, some hidden sin, some secret thing you haven't confessed. That's the reason God did this. And that sent Job into this process of getting ready to, to question God, and ultimately he did challenge God. God didn't respond, though, with a free will defense or with the problem of good. He simply began telling Job, you cannot possibly understand my ways. Can you possibly know why I have done the things I've done, the power I have, the knowledge I have? And, and from that, we get a little bit of insight. Okay? We, we're all part of a cosmic war for supremacy in the universe, and that teaches us at least something about how to respond to evil, whether it's the evil we hear about out there or something very ugly or painful we might experience. Some of you guys have experienced some of these things. Some of you will at some point go through some kind of betrayal or loss or illness or disappointment. And in your heart of hearts, you're going to have to answer this question for real, not, not the kind of answer you might put on a test in Bible class, okay? not the kind of thing you might say to sound holy around other Christians, but, but really in the depths of who you are, you're going to have to answer the question, is God really good? Is he really trustworthy? One of the last times I spoke here at chapel was January 16, 2013. And I didn't have to go to a calendar to know that date. It's because two days after that, January 18, 2013, was, was maybe the hardest day of my life. A lot of you guys know this story, or at least part of it, but 16 months prior to that, we, had, we brought home a little baby, and she was perfect. She was our foster daughter, and for about a year, we were being told, this is, this is your girl, this is moving fast toward adoption, and as a daddy, hanging around a little baby girl, you fall madly in love. For that year, one of, the, one of my favorite memories was just walking in the door. She'd be laying there, and I'd walk in, her little legs would just kick like crazy, and uh, she was just, just a delight. But about a year into that process, the courts decided, no, she needs to, she needs to move back with her family, and it was, it was devastating. It was a dark, dark time for my wife and me. And as a pastor, I would try to say all the right things, But deep down, I had to struggle with this question, is God good? So the problem of evil became real for me. I didn't have an answer. But as Christians, we do have two things that we can go to, two truths or two promises we can go to. You might be familiar with Romans 8, 28 and 29. Paul told the Romans this in in Romans 8, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So even though in that season I struggled 
badly with the goodness of God. I knew that there was this promise that somehow God can bring something good out of this. Okay, and, and the reason for the promise is that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In some sense, God was working, using that pain to make me more like Jesus in that process. Uh, in hindsight, he was teaching me humility. He was teaching me dependence. He was teaching me empathy. There's a quote from the movie Shadowlands about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was struggling with the death of his wife. I don't know if he ever wrote these exact words, but in his writings he wrote things like this, and this is what his character said in the movie when he was at one of his darkest times. He said this, Does God want us to suffer? What if the answer to that question is yes? You see, I don't think that God particularly, particularly wants us to be happy. I think he wants us to love and be loved. He wants us to grow up. You see, we are like children who think that our toys bring us all the happiness there is and that our nursery is the whole wide world. But something has to drive us out into the world of others. And that thing is suffering. Put simply, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We are like blocks of stone from which the sculptor carves a form. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. Is that a comfortable quote? No, it's terrifying to think that God might be like that. But it's also comforting. It's consistent with what we know, that God loves us too much to let us stay comfortable with where we're at. There's more to that story, and it's still being told we're still actually in relationship with her and her family. We've got to see God do some really cool things in that situation. She's actually spending the weekend with us starting tonight, and I'm very excited about 6.30 tonight picking her up. But not all stories round out that way. You may have suffered a, a loss or a death. It feels like there's no, there's no redeeming this situation. You can hear Romans 8.28, you hear my story and think, Maybe I'm just one of the lucky ones. Maybe it just worked out for me. Maybe that that promise isn't trustworthy. But we know who made the promise. We know what he's like. We know who God is. We have a God who didn't exempt himself from evil and suffering. Sometimes we think of God as like one of the Greek gods. They sit up on Olympus and they just look down. Sometimes they'll hurl down a thunderbolt. If they step down and enter into our world, it's just to kind of make trouble or get something out of it for themselves. Jesus is different than those gods, though. He dove in. He entered the worst aspects of this dark world that we live in. If you think about it, Jesus is the only person to ever choose the circumstances of his own birth. And he chose to be born at a time without running water, technology, and modern medicine. He chose to be born at a time when the king was about to dictate the murder of every little boy under the age of two. He knew full well what he was entering into. He was entering into a life of rejection. His life was going to end with him being framed for crimes he didn't commit, being punished in the worst possible way for the crimes you and I committed. He knew that the Father was going to turn his back on him, yet he chose that. Somebody want to trade places with Jesus? But he took, he took our place. He entered into this dark world, okay? We have a God, even though he doesn't give answers to our questions about pain and suffering, We have a God who is willing to enter in and face more pain and suffering than any of us will ever face out of love for us. And he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. So not only do we have his promises, we have a God who has suffered 
and is willing joyfully to suffer with us. I just want us to remember that we don't do it alone. Okay, We're worshiping a God who redeemed the greatest act of injustice that ever happened. Now, does that mentally solve the problem of evil? It doesn't, but it gives us a vision for what can sustain us. Job even knew that, even though he didn't understand what we did about who God is or what his Redeemer would be. In, in chapter 19, verse 25, he hung on to the truth that he said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. If we know Christ, that vision will sustain us through some of the hardest things we'll ever face. So if you are this morning in the midst of something hard, or you're trying to process something hard in the past, or maybe you're going, I've got it pretty good, but I want to be ready. Okay? So I want you to remember that we serve and worship a God who's willing to suffer with us. Let's pray. Lord, I, I just thank you for some of the things we got to celebrate this morning, some of the neat things that the sports teams have accomplished this week and the, the speech team and some of the neat things that are happening here at NC and, and so many of your blessings. Uh, Lord, but we also know that in this life you've said that there will be trouble and we want uh, to have a vision of you that will sustain us through those things. And we just we praise you that you are not just a God far off, that you are willing to enter this world, suffer with us, and die for us, and that, that you know and you understand that the difficult things that we go through. And I pray that that kind of love and empathy will sustain us when we're, we're dealing with tough things. I just pray for these guys and for, for the different challenges that are, are ahead for them today and this week and the rest of the school year. And, and we just praise you for who you are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.